the Click Z podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. And being prepared to pay a bit more for quality and transparency because there is no doubt a lot of people are wasting a lot of money because they're hooked by the sort of the juicy worm of really attractive impression rates and impression costs. You need to have a more sophisticated conversation with the media agency. This is the Click Z Digital Marketing Podcast, and I'm joined today by Mark Evans. We're going to be talking about audience insights, advertising effectiveness, and being a marketing leader. Welcome to the Click Z Digital Marketing Podcast, and I'm delighted to be welcoming Mark Evans from Direct Line Group. He's the Managing Director for Marketing and Digital at DLG and responsible for brand, communications, CRM, insights, digital and data. Quite a wide portfolio of responsibilities there. And he's also the exec sponsor for the BAME element of Direct Line Group's diversity and inclusion activity. Uh, and prior to Direct Line Group, Mark worked at HSBC and 118, which I still smile about, and I can still see those guys in the striped shirts running around all the time, so well done for that. Mark probably needs no introduction. He's well known in the marketing industry as very much a thought leader and co-hosts now his own show, um, Oh, The Places Will Go, which has been great, and I definitely recommend checking that out. There's some really great interviews on there as well. In addition to all this, Mark's a fellow of the Marketing Society and of the Marketing Academy, um, and is in Campaign Magazine's Power 100 Hall of Fame. So Mark, where do you find all the time for all this? Um, impressive uh, CV, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hearing more about this. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim, pleasure to be here. And thanks for your very kind words. No, it's it's great. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the, the great things about being able to have people on the show is just being able to learn from your experience and your insights. But I wonder, before we get into talking about marketing, which we're going to spend most of the time talking about, can you tell us a bit more about something that you're really passionate about outside of marketing? Yeah, so it's an easy answer, in fairness. It's the, the Sprinterthon, which they, needs a tiny bit of unpacking. But um, I always had an unrealized uh, ambition to, to run a marathon always kept getting injured when I got to the heavier miles. Um, so I, I basically have created the Sprinterthon, which hacks the marathon. So it's probably surprising when you look at my physique to know that I've run six. We're going to see the top half. Marathons. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. Um, I've run six of the 10 fastest marathons in the world. And people think, well, was this guy a joker? Uh, but I've only run a very short part because hacking the, the marathon has 422 people, each running 100 meters to run a very, very fast marathon. And uh, this is all for Stand Up to Cancer. I'm really proud of the fact that it's raised over half a million quid so far with some crazy times and lots of stories and is now sort of spreading more and more, uh, not just across marketing, but across many businesses into communities and so on. I think how the, how the Swimathon has grown. Hopefully we're going to do the same. Um, and it's, uh, I love it because it's a great combination of success and significance. So I'd had the idea quite a long time ago, run fast marathons, but it was it sort of felt a bit sort of selfish and indulgent. But given that it's to beat cancer faster, the success and significance come simultaneously. So it's my sort of slightly absurd hobby uh, and uh, much to my wife's annoyance at times really takes over. Has that been something which has really sort of taken off o- over lockdown as well? Because presumably people can't get out as much. So are they able to do their leg, their sprint within their home home environments? Yes, exactly that. So uh, it, it's such a buzzy day. It's a shame that lockdown came, of course, you know, for many reasons, but... Um, it's a bit like uh, a combination of the Olympics, the most inclusive sports day you never had, and it's a knockout, If for those who remember it. So it's it's a, a fun, inclusive, enjoyable, adrenaline-filled day. This year, we've obviously had to pivot into doing it virtually, 
uh, and actually we've had a very successful year because it kind of has democratized it a bit. Um, uh, within Direct Line, it's given us one of our biggest fundraising days ever, including having our CEO do the last leg, bringing the virtual baton home, uh, running along the beach in uh, by her house. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's actually, we just sort of, like many businesses, just had to pivot. And because of course, many charities have been yeah. devastated and so this has been the time we really need as much support yeah. as possible wow sounds like a fantastic initiative so um so yeah definitely check out sprinterthon um we've got on to talk about lockdown there and i wanted to ask you what's the one thing you think you've learned or gained um from living through this last year um and this lockdown so i i think there's so many things uh, you know personal things like you know valuing things i didn't before many silver linings but probably the biggest sort of most fundamental and important learning is about a, 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 the importance of a people-first approach. So com- companies like Unilever have long since said, so Alan Joke says regularly, you know, people are our most important stakeholders. It all flows from there. Um, Mediacom as well, many will be familiar. People first, you know, drives the results. And I think we kind of always, that's always been there, but it's become much more to the fore during COVID. The way that you treat your people is how they will then treat your customers which is then what will underpin your results. It's just to be much more vivid. And the flexibility and support that we've shown, it's bit, so in a nutshell, it's no coincidence that our spike in employee NPS has been in parallel to some of our highest ever customer NPS scores. So I think it's just a bit more vivid that you sort of pay it forward through your colleagues, um, which as I said, it's not a new thought, but it's just been so much more vivid during COVID. Yeah, really interesting. And I'd love to come back to MPS as a metric later on if we get a chance. Um, it's really interesting, though. You've got the employee MPS, which you're looking at as well. Let's get into talk about marketing a bit. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about being a marketing director? Um, maybe for some of those who are listening who are not quite marketing director yet, but they aspire to it. What, what misconceptions do you think there are around that role? It's slightly coloured by the fact that we've gone fully agile. So adopt fully adopted the Agile Manifesto, um, which obviously talks to empowerment and independent autonomous teams. But probably the biggest thing is, um, you know, the distance I have to advertising. Um, I'm I'm very keen to point out that marketing is obviously so much more than advertising, but for many people, it's a bit of a default uh, and maybe a pinnacle point. It's the bit they see most, Uh, isn't it? It's the bit they see most, but you know, in in truth, it is the last yard of a long, long process. But yeah, I'm just not very close to the advertising process because it is something again where you know you want somebody owning it um, and uh, you don't need that much interference because that can be really disturbing so yeah I mean it's um you know director is the clue you know set 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 the direction set the goals and the vision but then allow people to get on and, and deliver it so I, I you know I haven't been to an advertising shoot for well actually since 118 days and those one ones not to miss I might yeah. say yeah. But uh, always had crazy directors, or not crazy, but you know, very, very good, but slightly different. But so, yeah, I mean, it's it's the proximity to the advertising process, which is probably what people were surprised at. Um, yeah, and I suppose you know the skills and the qualities that you need as a marketing leader they they've slightly sort of changed. Um, over the years but many people expect as you say that it's you know about being hands-on and doing all those kind of creative things whereas you've already touched upon some of those skills around actually inspiring people and sort of talking about purpose and doing what we're doing today in, in terms of kind of sharing your thoughts being a thought leader um, getting up on stage all of those, those kind of wider things but what, what do you think are the essential skills and qualities that a, a marketing leader needs to have these days I, 
well, I think you've already sort of given a few clues there, which is that the old school command and control is increasingly outdated as a, a way to be as a leader. Um, you know, it doesn't chime with uh, a future generation, but also I don't think it really particularly chimes with anybody. So, um, and agile really is one way that that has, has been bottled. So, but to answer your question around the characteristics, I'm going to cheat a little bit. There's a fantastic book that I read called Captain Class. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm a bit of a sports nut, uh, hence the sprintathon. And uh, it picks, it identifies the 16 most successful sporting teams in the world ever. Successful in terms of uh, three, more than three years of global overperformance. Uh, there happens to be two rugby teams, which is my thing, but there's a, um, a Cuban uh, female volleyball team, uh, an Australian female um, hockey team, uh, and so on. So it's sort of the, the best of the best of the best. Uh, and when they looked at what made the difference, it wasn't money, it wasn't uh, previous success, it wasn't having the best player or the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Um, it came down to the captain. Mm. And very specifically captains that didn't quite fit the mold of the archetypal sports captain. So they were more humble. They were more leading from behind. Um, and the, the book identifies some characteristics in terms of the, the captain that will sweep the changing room, the one that will carry the water, the one that knows when to break the rules because it's in the interest of the team. The one that has a kill switch, who can switch off that sort of Im, Im, the emotion when it's really required to do so. Um, and has amazing non-verbal communication, which perhaps in sport in particular, but uh, so it's not, the, it's not the flowery words. It's the, it's almost all the acts in between the flowery words yeah. in a way. And I just think there's some lovely, lovely lessons in that book about what really inspires people to want to give their best every day in all circumstances, including through a lockdown. You know, it's, it's something, a much deeper thing than all the splashy cosmetics. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, I'm going to look up that book, Captain Class. Um, it sounds fascinating. And I think um, there's so much we can learn from sports. It's it's a real shame that sports isn't um, promoted more in schools because you know it's not just about the actual winning. It's about this this uh, leadership um, and being part of a team and and understanding leadership as being more than just as you say leading from the front, leading from behind, and being more humble. Love all that. I'm definitely going to check out that book. So I wonder whether we could maybe look a little bit at some of your marketing activity now as well. And could you give us examples of maybe one of the most important audience segments and how you are able to gather data and insights about that audience to sort of inform your advertising and your marketing? Yeah, well, so um, insight is part of the, the, the tapestry of our marketing function. We have an insight function um, and uh, we use some, some great agencies that support us. I mean, it's such a fundamental knowing what customers' needs are. Uh, I probably talk to the, our youth audience um, as a standout at the moment, particularly because our brands have been around for a while and there's always a risk with a mature brand that it's seen as something I'll, I'll get to that brand when I've grown up. But of course, nowadays, and particularly in insurance, you want to follow that life cycle, um, get in early, build a relationship and help and support people through their sort of life's journey. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing about insurance is it's, it's, a, it's a legalized, it's a legal necessity. It's quite expensive. It's quite complicated. You don't want to have to use it. Um, you probably don't think you're going to use it because everyone thinks they're a brilliant driver, for example. Um, so it's quite a hard and intangible category to connect with. Um, and of course, people are owning less, renting more, borrowing more, you know, the, the shared economy and so on. Um, so we've had to work pretty hard about how do we unlock with ourselves, with, with, with that audience. Um, obviously, you've seen a lot more telematics products recently. 
And this is about how do we make sure that we can risk price fairly for customers who are prepared to demonstrate that they're good drivers. Uh, but, but more generally, what we found is that the way to unlock with this, this audience is somewhat obliquely, which is the, perhaps the interesting thing to say. So by supporting uh, and being part of some underrepresented disadvantaged communities, and this links very much to a DNI agenda, we think that that's the way to connect with this audience. So it's not through the front door, because that if people don't know what they don't know about insurance until they've had bad experiences through their life. Uh, and so here we've had to understand much more deeply what matters to young people outside of insurance to find a place to have a conversation with them because just through the front door wouldn't work so i think it's tested our insight skills tested our creativity um, and 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 advertising development as well but i think it's a great lesson in terms of you know the the answers frequently are not obvious but you've got to really scratch at them and as you said curiosity is so critical and I, I often quote it, but and it was the quote of my, the best marketing boss I ever had, a chap called Bruce McColl. There's always an insight lurking around the corner, waiting to be found that will transform a brand or a business or a sector or, or a person. Um, you've just got to be curious enough to find it. And I, I do believe curiosity is something you can train yourself on. Uh, and that's been very, re very relevant with our youth audience. So how do you actually get those insights into the youth um, audience? Are you constantly running surveys? Are you running uh, qual? Are you doing other sort of um, insights? And I suppose you get quite a lot from actually just being out there in the communities you mentioned as well and engaging with them. A, a mixture of methods. So there's obviously, you know, qual and quant. Um, so we, at the moment, we're just doing a big piece of work around the climate. And so we've done a, a very quantitative segmentation uh, survey of understanding people's eco engagement um, that's great that will take you so far but then really to really get under the skin is where qualitative methods pull in um, we don't tend to use ethnography too much uh, within insurance because it's it's just sort of not that sort of thing where cohabiting with a customer for a couple of days is going to yield very much we do obviously lots of sort of shopper journey research but i used to work in uh, in pet care pet food and pet care back in the day with mars mm. and there we would you know, we would go walking with <laughs> our customers and their dogs yeah. just to understand a bit more about the psychology of the relationship. So I think it's that blend of quant and qual and, and to, to paint a, a, a richer canvas yeah. of the, the customer and their lives and their needs. And, and um, you know, try and, try and minimise the guessing, frankly. You know, and you, you have to use a bit of extrapolation, but that curiosity to really get under the skin and get the fullest picture possible. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that's, that's good to get that sort of picture and that insight. And once you've got those insights, then what are you finding are the most effective channels to engage with that community? I mean, maybe if we take that sort of youth audience, I mean, historically, youth have always been very difficult to engage with. And you've already alluded to some of the challenges um, you found that, you know, not going into the front door, as you put it. So what channels are effective at uh, you know, raising brand awareness and, and consideration amongst those groups? Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm going to state the obvious for the, the youth group and then move to a sort of a broader uh, perspective, which might be a slightly contrarian to what you'd expect me to say uh, when, when I go on to say it. But, you know, I mean, obviously the, the, the new emerging channels um, is where we've had to, to place our advertising. Um, and as I said, it's been much more by facilitating interest groups rather, and funding and facilitating those groups rather than straightforward messaging. Um, so but it, it's... It's sort of obvious what I've said there. What, what I wanted to say, which is slightly more contrarian, is that um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And it is overstated, the death of television and the fact that everything is digital. 
Well, well, actually, it's true that everything is digital because TV is beginning to become programmatic and it's digital anyway and on demand and so on. But the, the bigger answer to your question is that we're still finding that TV is our number one acquisition and brand building media proven through econometrics. It's the number one line on the plan and where we still spend a significant amount. Yes, granted, it's diminishing over time, but I think many brands have kind of lost their minds over the fact that we've, that, that most of the most effective campaigns are multi-channel and that TV is still a great medium to build broad a broadcast audience and, and hit reach and frequency. Hmm complemented by other channels so actually in some ways we describe ourselves as digitally conservative because we don't go a whole bundle on digital display but we use it very selectively and strategically in complement to um you know all other media we're very heavy on search because that's that's our category yeah. you know the insurance the first people do when they get their when people get renewal letters they put car insurance into google um but yeah i mean it's just i think it's so important to say that that People, marketing is quite a faddy uh, uh, industry, and uh, people will say, "Oh, it's all this or it's all that," and it's about having an understanding that these things all blend together. Yeah. So it's probably slightly, you know, an uncool thing to say it, but you know, don't don't lose sight of traditional media channels. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to look at it from a funnel perspective as well. And I remember back to my days six or seven years ago at Zipcar when we were doing a lot. Um, when I came on board, we were doing a lot at the lower funnel direct response. Um, but that meant then that we'd stopped doing the upper funnel brand awareness. Um, and actually that meant that we had a big problem because we weren't getting the consideration because uh, people didn't really understand what it was. We weren't getting education about actually what the car club was in the middle there. And we had to sort of rebalance that funnel and say, yes, digital is great for the lower bit of the funnel where people are actually searching, actively looking at, at the point of intent. But upper funnel is still really important to build that brand awareness. And I suppose back to your point about TV, that's why it's really important, isn't it, for uh, for financial services, because you need to build that awareness. And then when they actually come to the to the uh, decision on the search engine, they need to make sure they know your brand and, and want to come. Yeah, 100 percent. So managing the funnel in its totality, you know, it, it shudders, makes me shudder to think that maybe that's sort of becoming a lost art to see the whole funnel. Um, you know, why do I say that? I hear some people saying, well, I'm a digital marketer. Like, well, yeah, OK, but aren't you just a marketer and you'll use yeah. the channels that are most effective? And I'm sure we'll come on to talk about effectiveness. But, you know, you know, to, to be to be quite rigid in your views is a bit of a is a bit of a dangerous game. And um, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt sowing the seeds and then harvesting them. Yeah, it's so obvious you've got to do the both because um, otherwise you kind of run out of road. Um, and I think back to what we were talking about before, about being an effective leader, you want to be able to find the right people with the right skills, but you also need to be listening to the consumers and understanding where they are. And you're not sort of wedding yourself to, we're going to go for a digital strategy or a non-digital strategy. You're, you're constantly being curious and adapting your strategy to, to suit both of those things, the skills you've got and the needs of the consumer. But let's talk about effectiveness because we can, you kind of brought that one up. Can you give us some examples of how you're measuring effectiveness and performance um, and, and attribution? Because I know attribution can be a, a big uh, consideration. A lot of people listening are probably thinking about how they can attribute. And you probably have the additional challenge of trying to attribute it through some of those um, portals, uh, those insurance portals as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a labour of love within insurance because it's a particularly messy path to purchase uh, because it's complicated and expensive to many um it will take quite a long time and go through multiple cycles of consideration you know, if they if they many people shop 
but then may not end up switching for whatever reason. But it's quite a complicated scenario. Um, our journey on marketing effectiveness really started in 2012 when we really properly started to develop a marketing effectiveness team in-house that partnered with a third-party provider as well. He does a lot of the heavy lifting around econometrics. So we have an in-house econometrician um, who's worked agency side, um, uh, econometrics, sorry, media agency side, um, econometrics agency side, and now with us client side. So I don't know what the poacher turned gamekeeper or whatever metaphor is. <laughs> yeah. He, he's ticked all the boxes um, and we've really invested quite heavily in building up our, our our tools and techniques so we do a lot of geo testing we do a lot of a b testing a lot of experimentation try and carve out a part of our annual budget for test and learn but we also have the heavy list heavy lifting models and um, modeling and econometrics and um, 2018 we won uh, ipa effectiveness gold um, for that work uh, and also the new learning award which we're super proud of and this that specifically was as a result of us stitching together our econometrics and brand tracking so that when we go to the business, we can be really clear about what the return of any piece of activity is. That is measurable. And that, that gives us license to do stuff which is not measurable because it all comes from the same stable. But I mean, it's, a, it's about discipline, treating marketing effectiveness as a science, as a profession. And it, and it takes time to, to build up the, the modelling. Yeah, and the culture as well. The sort of mindset in the team, I imagine. Um, how, how are you using that actually to make decisions then? I mean, is it that you have a team that's doing the analysis and the attribution and the tracking over there and then the team that is responsible for finding new channels or innovation? How are they working together to ensure that they're sort of making those decisions on a data-driven basis? Yeah, uh, in partnership, I would say. So deliberately, the marketing effectiveness team is is in within the marketing function. When we were all back in offices, you know, remember those days? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the geographical middle of the team for everybody who was in our in our head office. Um, and so they, we sort of, the friendly critic or, uh, you know, um, so have some distance and objectivity, but they're also part of the partnership. Uh, and so we found that that worked, uh, that worked really well to uh, enable the right level of experimentation, but also the right level of rigor. Uh, I mean, we did we did set out um, 2013. It was to very explicitly increase the commercial rigor of everybody in the marketing function. Um, so we had ruthless commerciality as one of our mantras. Um, we went so far as to put that on as one of our mantras onto the, the meeting room door. Uh, and unfortunately, the the regulator came in one time and um, said, "Oh, ruthless commerciality. Does that mean the marketing <laughs> function doesn't care about customers? And we had to sort of explain, no, 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 this is about just making sure that we're financially rigorous as opposed to ruthless in terms of what we do for customers. Anyway, slightly side story, but I think, you know, that, that marketing as a function has to talk the language of the board, and that means it has to talk numbers. If you really love your ads, show them to your mum. Uh, don't show them to the board. You know, it's, it's a numbers game. Otherwise, you default to it being a colouring in function. And I'll tell a little story that I've told a few times over, but one of the last meetings I had before lockdown, I was talking to somebody who'd come on the graduate scheme, rotated from procurement into marketing. I asked them, how did they feel about coming into marketing? And they looked at me a bit sheepish and said, uh, well, actually, I was a little bit nervous because I was rubbish at drawing at school. <laughs> and so wow. the, the cliche that marketing is seen as a colouring in function, frankly, is alive and well. Yeah. So we should all remember that in terms of you know the imperative to speak the language of the board. Now that that's a great story. I love that one, and it, it it is so true that, I mean I've seen it in in my career 
that there has been a, a move towards being much more analytic and much more data driven. Um, and that's, I think, a large part because there's so much more data available now through digital marketing. But I think also as you progress and become more experienced and more senior, you're exposed to more of the commercial reality of the business and you understand the importance of having to kind of drive those commercial goals um, as well. We've been talking about sort of measuring things. Wastage and transparency are two really big themes at the moment. Wastage has been one of the sort of the bugbears for me when I've been spending media. I know that a lot of it's not reaching the actual media. It's getting, you know, it's just getting wasted along the way. Um, and I wondered what your sort of, how you've been measuring um, sort of wastage and return on ad spend um, and what you're doing to sort of improve transparency from from direct line groups perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a big question. There's a few parts to it. Uh, I'm involved with the Advertising Association um, who, as part of the trust agenda, we're looking to address bombardment and excess frequency because there, in many cases, there was one example of a bank that when they totted it all up and did the cross-tabbing, they were, a customer could have been exposed to their ad over 200 times. So that's, that's not only a waste, it's annoying and damaging of advertising per se. So that's one aspect. Mm. Um, but, but in terms of uh, you know, identifying waste, I guess we're quite systematic about it. I'll, I'll use as an example, plain Jane digital display. Um, back in 2013, we did a bunch of geo testing and recognized that uh, digital display wasn't adding incrementality and we were spending a lot of money on it. Uh, and so we stopped and we saw that it didn't have an impact. 2013, 2018, Mark Pritchard raises this flag on behalf of the whole industry. Uh, and I think they cut back 150 million globally or something and saw no impact. Hmm. Uh, and so part of me was a bit smug that, you know, we were five years ahead, but we yeah, well done. we've proven the case that it wasn't adding. Um, so I think that's one part of it is, is the case that some channels are not adding incrementality and you only know that through AB testing, um, whether that's regional or geo or whatever it is. Um, the other part you've talked about is the sort of the slightly murky waters around the digital food chain. Uh, you know, is, is a pixel an impression? Does it go to a human being? Um, ad blocking, fraud, uh, many many cooks around the pot, yeah. uh, etc. And so for this one, actually, we just had to work much more transparently with our media agency in terms of understanding the true value at each stage of the waterfall and being prepared to pay a bit more for quality and transparency. Um, because there is no doubt a lot of people are wasting a lot of money and they really just don't know that's the case because they're hooked by the sort of the juicy worm of really attractive impression rates and impression costs. So I think it's, is a, a more need to have a more sophisticated conversation with the media agency, mm. on how things are really working and, and the right incentives for everybody around that. Yeah, it's interesting because often the incentive for media agencies, and I don't want to say all media agencies, but you know, often and some, um, they'll be looking at trying to get away the largest volume because they, they're tied into volume deals. Um, and that's not quality, not a quality metric. Um, and then that, I think that's where we've got ourselves in some of these problems around transparency. Um, the natural sort of evolution of that, of course, is this sort of trend towards in-housing. We've seen a, a lot of brands sort of say, well, actually, we're going to take that in-house. And I, I in-housed our media buying in Zipcar, uh, again, this was a while ago now. But uh, one of the challenges I think we found then was that whilst it was good that we had more visibility and we had more data, um, then we had 
a lot more data. So it actually became a problem. Then what do we do with all that data? Then we had to look at, well, do we have data analysts? And it, it just presented a whole new range of changes, uh, challenges. And I, and I think what I'm seeing generally now is that there's almost like it's it's started to swing back to a hybrid model of the some agency support and some in-house. Um, and it seems to have found a balance. But what's your sort of experience at Direct Line Group? Have you looked at in-housing? Is that sort of something that's, that's interesting for you? Yeah, I'm always open-minded, but I think more so, even more so than that, agnostic. Uh, I'm, I'm always reminded of one of the founding principles at Mars. I worked at Mars for a decade, and I would say it had a tremendous influence in the way I see things. Uh, and one of the principles was efficiency, and efficiency meant do what you do best. And that led to a belief that having long-term strategic partners and uh, with a mutual benefit, a mutual benefit is an enduring benefit. Um, and so we sort of take each case on its merits. Um, yeah, maybe a directional leaning to in-house if we can, for obvious reasons, you know, control and visibility and uh, and, and so on, less less um, you know less handovers. But actually, at the same time, there's agencies out there who do that every day at scale with more experience. And I worry if you do in-house, you do kind of do a bit of a freeze frame, and then all of a sudden, unknowingly, your, your shutters can be coming down to new learning, new opportunities. Mm. So in many cases, we do have the hybrid. Some things we do in-house, so uh, social, a bit of all social we do in-house. Um, some things we do, we, we entirely outsource. But uh, more, more often than not, there's some form of hybrid. I've already mentioned our econometrics is part in-house, part outsourced. Uh, our um, paid search with Google, again, is, is combined. But in terms of the, the, the buying itself, the Mediacom do that job for us because they do it well uh, and consistently deliver. And I think we just wouldn't be tapping into the scale of the, the, the buying power that they have if we were to do it our own. So I think these things, being, being pragmatic is and, and agnostic is important. And that will, yeah. that will drive the, the right outcome. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's a good approach. And back to those kind of skills and qualities of a marketing leader, being able to sort of take the uh, data-driven approach, look at the evidence uh, of what works, trying out a few things. Um, so I suppose just to start to wrap things up a little bit and, and look towards the future, one of the big challenges that all marketers are going to be facing over the next 12 months or so is what I like to call the cookie winter. Um, the fact that now Google are going to be withdrawing the third party cookie um, and there's a lot of other um, challenges around privacy and what Apple are doing as well. Is this something which is on your radar? Are you looking to re leverage your first party data? What's your sort of solution and your plan to deal with the, the cookie winter? Yeah, the cookie winter, cookie sunset, cookie tsunami, uh, cookie. Oh, those, those are new ones. Cookie uh, apocalypse. Um, boy, that's a good one. Uh, well, you know, my view would be that the sky is not falling. Um, I suppose I can say that because we're very much a first party data organization because we do have scale and history and high degree of consent and have been focused on this for a while. So I suppose we've mitigated our dependency. I think for some businesses it is fundamental and is existential, but we're not you know, overly sweating. Uh, and it's probably not a differentiator in terms of impact and performance for our, for our sector. So you, you might just be asking the wrong person the question, but I generally, I think it's, you know, um, data privacy is an inexorable agenda, rightly so. Um, but I do, I do choose to believe that the sky is not falling uh, on yeah. that one. No, that's good. It is really, um, I think, important to have a wide range of perspectives on this. I mean, I spend a lot of my time talking about cookies in the cookie winter with with brands who don't have as much first party data where it is a problem. But it's it's also really good to get your perspective where maybe it isn't such a such a big problem um, and not one of the main sort of challenges. 
Um, so as we look towards the future then, what do you think is the the thing that you're most excited about from a marketing perspective or from an advertising perspective over the next 12 months? Well, uh, it's a really good question. I, I, you know, what I would say is it's not compulsory to be a masochist, but it helps. <laughs> um, but, you know, there is no doubt that we're in very, very volatile waters. But, but marketers should love volatility, a bit like traders, you know, uh, broker traders, you know, financial instruments and all that. They should love volatility because that's how they make their margin. Marketers mm. should lo love volatility because it's the time when we need to shine. Um, customer habits are changing. Media patterns are changing. And so I I'm excited about um, you know, what, what might be in a year's time because some of that's going to be unknown. That said, there's a very, very specific thing happening in insurance, which is a change in regulation, which means that insurers can't increase prices in subsequent years, which is sort of how the industry has typically made its money. So it's a big level set. And that is a huge disturbance to the sector. And so, as I said, you know, it helps to be a masochist. I'm, I'm excited about what that will bring because there's many twists and turns. It's a super competitive industry and it's a big piece of regulation coming in. Uh, and so, you know, it's uh, sort of to the win of the spoils. And it's, so it's a really brings out the competitive in instinct in me. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean it's sort of the the the, the general volatility and a little bit the unknown, which keeps yeah. you on your toes. You know, if it was if it was easy, it would be dull. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really good um, way of analysing uh, the the challenges that we've got ahead of ourselves in the industry, but also. As you say, it would be really dull if if we figured out the perfect media plan and the f perfect marketing channels and just rinse and repeat every year. That would be so dull. But actually, it does force us to use our brains to try things out, to innovate, to you know, and, and our teams as well. You know, allow them to really sort of um, find marketing interesting and think about some of those strategic commercial challenges rather than just the coloring in bits. Yeah, amazing. Um, so just to, to finalize things then and, and kind of wrap things up, I wanted to find out how your podcast's going because um, I've been following that and it's been great. You've had some amazing guests on there. How we found that and, and what's the best way that we can keep in touch and follow other things you're doing? Well, I, I love the fact you mentioned it. It, it was a sort of a, a casual, crazy idea that Richie Meta, who's a founder of the School of Marketing and I had, and we sort of followed our noses on it and uh, out of small acorns. And the, 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 the places we'll go is to interview really interesting, successful people, but not about the hey, look at me, I'm perfect sort of flavor. Uh, much more in terms of what have been the bumps in the road, the undulations that have given them energy and learning, their resilience, bounce back, bounce back ability. Mm. Uh, and so that everyone can draw a bit of inspiration from hearing amazing people talking about how they've had to struggle at times and how they've been resilient um, to inspire people in their own struggles. And so we've had some amazing guests. Uh, you know, we've had, yes, Martin Sorrell and Paul Polman and Mark Ritson and Karen Blackett, and we've got some great ones lined up. Clive Woodward. Um, oh, great! Yes, yeah, Clive. Yeah, and um, oh, he's a big rugby fan of yours. Oh, I yeah, imagine yeah. you're a fan. There's, 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 there's a little bit that's creeping in. Will Greenwood as well. Um, in, in fairness, is coming along. We also um, got hoping to have Matthew Side in a, in a few weeks' time as well. So, um, no, it's, it's going really well. And I would say it's an absolute privilege. It's a great distraction from the day job, even though it's only an hour a week, eight a.m. on a UK time on a Friday morning. Um, but it's a real privilege to be able to talk to some quite special people about their lives in, in, a, in a relatively sort of vulnerable and relaxed way. Mm. And um, so to have Martin Sorrell talking about, you know, his relationship with his father, you know, it's not sort of something you'd stumble along across every day. Um, so to, for people to be a bit more candid and open. And if people do want to listen, it's 8 a, as I said, 8 a.m. on a Friday morning, UK time. 
Um, and uh, School of Marketing is where you can subscribe from. We've got a YouTube channel. It's still fairly embryonic, but we, we love the fact that we can get sort of under the skin of the people behind the 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 brands, if you like. I think that's the really important thing. And, you know, we've done a little bit of that today, but just trying to show the more junior marketers, people kind of, you know, who aren't marketing directors yet, that actually we're, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Um, we we need to learn from those mistakes, but that's the only way you can actually learn. And, you know, so many times in, on the show, we've talked about feeling overwhelmed. Um, and uh, when I was talking to Scott Brinke, he said, well, look, if you're not feeling overwhelmed, you're not doing your job as a marketer. You need to be constantly in there, sort of, you know, dealing with that feeling overwhelming, trying new things and, and you're challenging yourself. Um, so I love the idea behind your show of actually sort of sharing some of those vulnerabilities from some of those amazing guests you've mentioned there and uh, yeah it'd be fantastic to, to follow up and uh, I'll be listening out and uh, and watching that show so Mark thank you very much that's been fantastic I've really appreciated that learned a lot and uh, that's been great for our audience as well thank you so much for joining me today yeah my, my pleasure Tim um, and uh, hopefully it's useful and uh, good luck with your show as well find more episodes at clickz.com forward slash podcasts or follow me on twitter at Tim for Change We'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks. Until then, keep up to date with ClickZ and don't forget to review us on iTunes and Stitcher. ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company founded in 1997, providing best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 300,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. Thank you for listening and bye for now.